Hello! Hey, how you doing today? I'm doing really good. How are you doing? Man, I am worn out. I have a very precarious balance between school and work and home life, and none of it is working. And the case in point was last night, I was supposed to go celebrate my youngest son. He had just completed a six and a half hour belt test in karate. And I was so proud of him, so excited, but I I had to miss it because I had to work on Saturday. But then last night was the ceremony where we were really going to celebrate him and he was going to get his new belt. And I got called and forced into work and I missed it. And that's just so lame. Uh, Not to mention, like, I I needed to do homework afterward and all of these other things and it messed up my sleep. And, you know, I don't know. Uh, I am crawling myself to this moment where we finally get to talk. Oh, man, that's got to be sad and frustrating. And how'd your son respond to it? Yeah, I mean, he's gracious. Like, I think he was disappointed. I know he was disappointed. But at the same time, he knew there was nothing I could do about it. Like, work calls and says, you got to come in, then you just got to come in. And so, you know, he was disappointed, but I got home late that evening and I was able to chat with him a little bit, celebrate, you know, the fact that he has this belt and what a great achievement and all of that stuff. So, you know, I don't know, nothing, nothing compares to actually being there, but I, I did my best to celebrate him anyway. Absolutely. Well, for what it's worth, congratulations on that. That is a huge accomplishment. Oh my gosh. Yeah. He, he worked his tail off. So I'm super proud of him. Yeah. That's a huge deal. That's awesome. Yeah. How about you? I am. Oh, I am doing pretty well. I'm limping today. Actually. I have been mountain biking again now that the weather's a little bit crisp and I was mountain biking this morning and I actually misjudged a route that was on the path that I was on. And it was a pretty big one. And my tire landed and stopped my bike. And I kind of half fell off of it. But uh, the bike slammed into my knee. And uh, so I have this big black and blue on my knee and was limping a little bit today. And I don't know if you've gotten to this point, but and I don't think we've said this in the podcast before, but Black and blue marks injuries, all that sort of thing does not heal as quickly as it used to. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking when you talk, we were talking about it. One, I'm sorry that that happened. But two, I was thinking, oh, great, we've reached the point where our podcast is now just going to be about knee injuries and surgeries. And uh, <laughs> well, yeah. and I will say to add to that ethos that we are now creating. It was my good knee that I hurt. <laughs> okay. Uh, I had pretty bad tendonitis a couple of years ago in my other knee, and it still messes up every once in a while, and I have to really be careful about keeping it stretched. So, yep, it was my good knee that I banged into this morning when I was mountain biking, because I'm old. Which brings me to this moment. Ben Gay 
if you're out there, you've won an opportunity to sponsor an episode of On the Phone with Josh. <laughs> that is true. Uh, we would welcome your sponsorship. Oh, man. Well, my knee hurts more thinking about it. So can we move on to something else? Yeah, I would be happy to. But I don't know. Uh, this is going to be kind of a fun topic for you and for me. This is something we haven't done yet on the podcast, which is to dive into something like really theological. And though that can be a big scary word for people, you and I both come out theology with a bent toward the practical. And so mm. even if I want to talk about something like deeply theological, I also want to get to the implications for the church and how we live that come out of that. So with all of that- Okay, before you introduce up, the topic, oh, okay. before you introduce the topic, I just want to say to those of you who are listening, do you agree that we have not dived, or as I am trying to coin the word, divin, we have not divin into any theological topics in the past? Do you agree with that? And if you don't, tell us in a comment to some post somewhere what theological topics you feel like we have divin into. All right, and today's topic is... Uh, the Trinity. Ooh. Yeah. And so this comes from, like I've, I've told you before that I'm taking these two classes. One of them is Christian formation, and that class is wonderful, and a lot of thoughts have already made it onto the podcast from that. But I'm also taking this class on the doctrine of God. And before the semester started, the professor emailed out a, a introduction to the course in which he said, prepare for a theological feast, which I think is a fancy term for you're going to read until your eyes bleed, so, <laughs> uh, which has been my experience. And one of the books that I'm reading for my research paper is a book called Being as Communion, and it's by John Zizioulis. There's going to be some theologian out there that's listening to this that's going to like kill me for how I butchered that guy's name. But the exciting thing is that means that there's a theologian listening. So that's okay. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So this is, I think, the hardest book I have ever read. And uh, well, I guess I can't give myself the victory quite yet, but it is a really, really challenging read. Let me get to what I'm talking about, though. So he outlines a lot of philosophical underpinnings for why he thinks this that I don't really want to get into. But he says that the Trinity implies that being and community are one and the same. And his critique is of Western theology, Western metaphysics, that really tries to understand the ontology, the, the basic substance of what being really is. And there's a lot of theologians that do the same thing. But he says that our understanding of the Trinity, and particularly the Cappadocian Father's understanding of the Trinity, implies that being and community are one and the same. So there is no being without community because God is three in one and always has been and always will be. And he is the source of being. And so being is inherently relational. That's the foundation of 
everything I want to talk about. So I want to pause there and see how does that strike you? All right. So what I'm hearing you say is that to be, and I'm assuming obviously for the sake of obvious distinctions, to be human Mm -hmm. is to exist in the context of a web of relationships. Obviously, you're not describing trees this way, or are you? Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, I could see that going either way. Yeah, if I understand this book rightly, and that is a big if throughout this whole conversation, but I only understand him to be saying humanity being created in this same image of God reality that I'm talking about, this being as communion, not any other part of creation. Okay, because as I was saying, clearly that's what you meant. I was like, but you know, the concept of what a tree actually is, is profoundly influenced by existence in relationship to things like squirrels and earth and woodcutters. And so I was like, man, even something like a tree, you could say exists only in that sort of web of relationships. Well, and I think that physics and all sorts of branches of science are discovering the interrelatedness of all of creation. And so we don't just have like the old Newtonian understanding of matter as just its own individualized things. They have an interrelationship and they depend upon other organisms, other units of matter, for lack of a better word, in order to have their sustenance. So there's probably some truth in all of what we just said, but I don't think that's the truth that he's talking about. All right. So try to capture for me in one sentence the essence of the truth that he's trying to drive home. I don't know that I can do it in one sentence, but the best I could do is probably there is no being without communion. Being and communion are inextricably linked as one ontological substance. So this reminds me, if I'm hearing you correctly, of something my dad used to say as a, when I was a kid, that you're going to try to flip on its head. Whenever he talked about Exodus chapter 3 and God introducing himself as I am, he would always say the difference between us and God is that God can say, I am, and we have to say, I am because. I am dependent on food, air, all these other things. In a sense, you're saying, not that God can't say, he, I am, because of course he can, but that in the same way that my existence is shaped by and defined by others, God's existence is also shaped by and defined by others. No. Except you're saying it in the other way around? I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't put it that way because in some ways that would make God's existence dependent upon the idea of communion. And I don't think God's existence depends on anything. But to say that God exists is the same thing to, as to say God exists in community because of the triunity of God. God is one substance in three persons. And so we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in divine communion with one another. 
existing simultaneously with being it there is no being without that yeah that uh, yep okay i think i'm with you so it really the idea here is the idea of relationships is core to the very existence of god essentially you are elevating the idea of trinity to being essential to understanding god yes absolutely which i'm not saying that uh, what am I trying to say? I think we head nod as a, as a churches often to the idea of the Trinity, but I don't know if we actually think it's essential, mm. typically in our practice. I'm, I'm so thankful you said that because that's what was enlightening to me about this book. Because I think a lot of people that are familiar with Trinitarian theology would go, yeah, of course, like, What's the, what's the new thing here? And you're hitting on what I think the new thing is here, the essential quality of this. The You cannot proceed without acknowledging this. Everything is built upon it. It is foundational. That's what I find so fascinating about this. And you know, as we go, I want to tease out some of the implications. But I'm glad that you're seeing it in that way. Well, and this is exactly where I want to go. If kind of what you're suggesting is that this is the foundation of the theological structure we want to build, I have two instinctive reactions. Number one, if we're choosing a fundamentally different foundation, I would expect that to impact our theological constructs moving forward so that we are more fundamentally different from... Judaism or Islam or something, then perhaps we always want to acknowledge. And two, maybe we need to be different from even the way we normally envision our own theological vision. So I guess I'm looking at it externally relative to some of our closest theological neighbors and internally asking myself, how does this want to change the way I see the world. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it's doing in me. It's reorienting me in a lot of really cool ways, because if this is the starting point, and I'm going to stop there and say, is this the starting point? I, I'm sold by his argument. Is there anything we need to consider before assuming this starting point? Well, when I th- Think about what is the starting point of the spiritual venture or the theological project. There are two starting points, either the, the human starting point, I'm a sinner, or the divine starting point, this is who God is. And over time, I have liked more and more the idea of starting with God rather than starting with me. I think that ends up creating a bigger world for me to look at, a world more full of wonder rather than just trying to solve problems. And if that is all true, then starting with correct statements about the fundamental nature of God seems like the right place to start. Yeah, I completely agree. And I agree that God is the starting point over our sin nature or any other aspect of humanity. So if... In this... Uh, to be clear, in this sort of 
analytical space. If I'm having a conversation with a broken and hurting person in a pastoral space, I might start from a different place because I'm starting from where they are trying to help them take a step in the right direction. But that's not really what we're talking about yet. Absolutely. But I also think that this is foundational for what a true pastoral response would be to the individual in that moment. If you don't have this worked out, I think your answer to them is going to be different than what I'm suggesting it should be. And and I think that very well could be true. This is where, for me, pastoral ministry really comes down to what in my head, and I don't know that I've said this before or if maybe I have, but I think of pastoral ministry largely in terms of a GPS. A GPS requires two things. I need to know where I'm going and what my next turn is. And I, as the pastor, often need to know the end destination, but the person I'm counseling doesn't always need to know all that information. They need to know the next turn, the next step, but that next step is fundamentally informed by the destination. Yes. I, I think that's a wonderful image, and I think that uh, illustrates really well. So here's why I think this doctrine is so important, and some of the implications that he's beginning to tease out in this book, and I imagine there's plenty more to come that I haven't gotten to. He says that, as you said, our being is contingent upon God's being. So God as God has being in and of himself, but we have being only because of him. And so he created us in this same communal identity. So he created us to have fellowship with him. He created us to have fellowship with one another. Our being is a communal being, just like his being is communal. But what we did in the garden is we chose to make ourselves, rather than this community, the center of the universe. I responded to my wants, my desires, my plan for what should happen next. And I chose individuality over community. I chose to make myself the reference point rather than the being that is God the reference point. And so individuality and sin and death are all intrinsically linked So death entered the world through sin, the Bible tells us. And why? Because we stepped away from community. In other words, we stepped away from being. We chose death by choosing individuality. So I'll I'll pause there. What, What are your thoughts on that? That's really interesting. I feel very much like you said at the beginning There's a piece of me that's saying, yes, of course, obviously, and a piece of me that's saying there is something very profound there if we define being as communal or community, if we define existence as being amongst others and capitalize the O in others to include God the act of sin really becomes a step away from being. Yeah. But keep teasing this out for me. What makes this more than a, an interesting construct? I, I'm not saying it isn't. I'm just saying I feel like I need more. Yeah. I think because then we start understanding the act of salvation 
differently. We are saved into, as Zizioulis uh, says, an ecclesial life, a church life, a life in community with God's fellowship, with God's being, and with others that have been similarly raised back to life and full participation in community with the Trinity and with others. This is a whole church experience of the new life. Salvation is, by definition, communal, ecclesial, whole church salvation. And so we chose individuality, separateness, and ultimately, therefore, death. And God saved us from our sin, death, individuality, and brought us back into full being in community, both with himself and with the church. So this is, by definition, a communal act. Well, and and the piece of it that you're not mentioning as much that, for me, makes this abundantly obvious and true and important is the fact that not only is our, our salvation communal, but our sanctification is a communal activity. Mm. If I'm understanding you correctly, the most profound part of salvation, if being is community, then becoming a holy people, the most important part of that is being able to learn to live fully as a community. And when you bring my messiness my brokenness, my sinful withdrawal from community nature into a community, there's going to be a lot of mess Mm. and a lot of hurt. And I've got two options in that moment. I can walk away or I can seek to engage, recognizing that my local expression of the church is imperfect, but I'm imperfect too, and that what it means to be more Christ-like, more Trinitarian, is to embrace the community more when it hurts, rather than running away to another church when it hurts. Yeah, I mean, you're right. That is a choice to walk away, but... If Zizoulis is right, to choose individuality and to choose isolation, to choose to walk away, is to choose death, is to choose non-being. Now, I also want to differentiate. I think there is perfect communion with the Trinity that is absolutely required for salvation. Whether or not I get along with Joe Smith I don't think it's absolutely required for salvation. So I don't want to say that. And I also don't want to say that people who are truly toxic in your life should somehow be elevated to like, you have to stay with that toxic person because somehow or another, yeah, like that just, that's not at all what we're talking about because I don't think a toxic person is participating in the Trinitarian love of the father anyway. So like, yeah, you know, anyway. Yeah, no, this is why Jesus gave us in in Matthew 18 sort of a list of things to do, to do when complicated stuff happens. But you're absolutely right. I am definitely not trying to say every person should stay in every situation every single time. 
Uh, and I'm glad you said that because I would hate to think that someone stayed in a toxic situation because they thought that believing in the Trinity required them to do so. Yeah. I, I That is not at all where we want to go. But boy, it does mean we have to be careful because some of our best sanctification may come from embracing community with those who are the least comfortable to embrace. Yeah. I think in that moment, I think back to C.S. Lewis, who talked about, we'll never know when we just look at somebody that's a little crusty around the edges and hard to get along with, we'll never know what they would have been like without the salvation of Jesus. <laughs> so uh, yeah. take heart. Uh, this might be a better version than you otherwise would have gotten. Yeah. Well, and even just, you know, sometimes I think of the end goal of spiritual growth as, am I a good person? And there are lots of reasons that is not correct. But one of them that you're hitting on that I think is fascinating is it would require me to ask, am I part of a good people? And I I think what I mean is that it, it may fundamentally even be incorrect to evaluate my spiritual growth. It may be a more helpful measure to ask about our spiritual growth or our spiritual health whoever my spiritual hour is, my local church, my spiritual community. Because that's not a question we ask. Right. We ask, am I spiritually growing? I, I mean, I ask that question every day about myself. And I lead people in my church to ask that question every single day. Not, are we spiritually growing? Or are we spiritually moving forward or whatever? Yeah, I think that's a good corrective because we definitely live in an individualized society. And so therefore, a society that prefers death over being as communion. But I would say regardless of whether or not you ask the question personally or corporately, the definition of success, the measure that we're shooting for is identical. Are we participating in the Trinitarian love and fellowship of the, of the Trinity? Yeah, absolutely. Boy, and I have to say that for me, I have to add something like, am I participating in the the love of the Trinity through a local community or church or something like that? Because it's super easy for me as an in- introvert to say, yes, when I sit in my chair alone and meditate on scripture, I am seeking to participate in the love of the Trinity. And I think that's not what we're talking about. Mm. You know, we have two, depending on your tradition, you might call them sacraments or ordinances uh, that we do in the church. And so baptism and communion are the two that I'm referring to. And so it elevates the nature of baptism and communion because Mm. this is a corporate connection point with the Trinity right? Uh, The Trinity was present in Jesus's baptism. The Father spoke, the Spirit descended like a dove, and Jesus was baptized. We have this beautiful picture of the Trinity, and that same picture is present at our baptism. And this person that I'm reading, uh, Zuzulis, he's Eastern Orthodox, and so he believes that the bread and the wine at communion, or Eucharist, becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. 
And that's not something I believe in my tradition. But again, he uses that as a springboard to show this is, is not just represents, but is divine fellowship with the Trinity. So whether you understand it in that way or not, I think that the point is still the same, that this elevates these corporate practices where we together experience the Trinity. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we just at my church just recently took communion on a Sunday morning for the first time in quite some time. We had been hesitant to do it because of COVID stuff and all those things, and it kind of got out of the routine, and we planned this whole calendar year in the midst of COVID, and so it wasn't really in the calendar plan and whatever, and so we just recently reinstituted it. And it really is a powerful, powerful thing to watch the church stream forward to all receive communion together. Mm. There's something that reminds me that we are all in the same boat when it's the same little cup, even if it's the goofy little cup that you tear one plastic wrapper off and then you have the wafer and then another plastic wrapper off and you have the communion and whatever, like, I don't care. Because we're all doing the same thing. Yeah. And we're all doing the same thing regardless of how long we've been following Jesus, regardless of how good we are at it, regardless of what role we play in the church, regardless of our parentage, regardless of everything. And we're all just jammed in the aisles together to say, hey, I... I need that. Right. Yeah, I had a friend who had grown up in a very, very fundamentalist, maybe denomination, or at least expression of that denomination. And as an older adult, was finding his way into other Christian contexts and trying to find some healing from some of the things that he experienced. And he found himself in a very liturgical church. I don't remember which type where their practice at communion was, again, as you say, the everybody filing forward. But instead of like grabbing the elements off of a table or something, you held out your hands and you received the bread from the officiant and you received the wine from the officiant. You did nothing but come with empty hands in supplication in front of you. Mm. And he found such power in that. I am not doing anything in this moment. I am dependent upon what God has done. And especially if we talk about our being or our new being, our new creation, either way we talk about it, we are dependent upon the will of God for that being. And so we come as a congregation and declare our dependency. Yeah. my One of my favorite communion experiences was in a church that we were visiting one Sunday. And again, it was kind of a higher church approach. So they did that same thing where your hands were open and receiving. And I don't know if this is what they do every time they have communion or if they just happen to be doing it this time that we were there. But they were asking every person to put a name tag on when they went into church. And then the officiant actually used your name. Joshua, this 
is Christ's body broken for you. Mary, this is Christ's body broken for you. And it was such a little thing, but it rocked my world. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm, I'm tearing up just hearing my name associated with communion. Like for somebody to speak so directly to me as to use my name, I don't know that our names just matter to us. Like that, that's just part of human nature. Wow. That's powerful. It, it really was. And it was such a simple extra thing to do. You know, it cost five bucks in name tags and like, <laughs> yeah, you know, a little bit of planning, but it just to bring the individual and the corporate so beautifully into harmony instead of into tension was a profound thing because you heard everybody's name. Yeah. Like you're in this giant line and you're hearing Trevor, this is God's Sally. This is God's Bob. This is God's Juanita. This is God's. And so you're hearing all these names that your name as well. And it's just, it was, a, it was amazing. I love it. I love that you mentioned the individuality and the corporate in one, because I think that's what we see in the Trinity. We see mm. three persons in one God. So there is a difference between community and collectivism, if that makes sense. We don't just have this mind meld with God and with others. We are still individualized. We still have differentiation, but we are part of a unity. We're part of a unified whole. And that is what God is. I mean, we have one God in three distinct differentiated persons. And so corporate and individual belong together. Absolutely. Well, and this is a powerful corrective for some of the traditions that I am most influenced by in Christianity. I am deeply influenced by the meditation and contemplation approaches to Christianity that can lean a little bit to the liberal side of things. And in those movements, being influenced by some of the more Eastern religious ways of thinking, there can be a sense of the goal of meditation, the goal of contemplation is to be lost in the Godhead, like a drop of sea in the ocean. Hmm. And this is not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I started off by saying this is an arena or, or a pathway in the Christian universe that I am deeply influenced by and that I dearly care about. Yeah. But it is one of the places where I think if I come back to my GPS metaphor, the end goal of the triune God results in an expectation of my becoming more myself, not losing myself. Hmm. It's certainly possible that some of the great mystical folks, if they were to hear me say that, they would say, 
you're not understanding what we're saying. <laughs> sure. When you become that drop of water lost in the ocean, you are more yourself than you've ever been. So I may be misrepresenting, but at least on a street level, to know that the end goal is that I will become more myself, not more like anybody else, but a fully differentiated person is a fascinating thought to me. Yeah. Boy, this has just been absolutely awesome. Thank you for going with me down this theological wormhole. It just has such big implications for how we live our lives. Um, I want to turn it out to the audience. Thank you for sticking with us as well. I hope that this was in some ways rewarding despite its uh, heaviness. And I would love to hear from you. We would love to hear from you. Uh, So please uh, like us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Comment on our posts. Let us know what your thoughts are, what you see the implications of Trinitarian theology to be in your own life and in your own church. I'd love to hear about it. Yes, absolutely. And uh, turning around here, I'd love to hear, you know, I know you're in school and I know this is one thing you've been thinking about, but... I'm assuming that you have lots of thoughts. What else have you been thinking about? Yeah, it's a great question. So I teased out my thought last week, and I said I was going to talk about the immutability of God. And I oh yeah, I forgot about this. Ooh, right. I'm I know. Go, but well, but it's another big theology thing. So I actually think we should pause for just a quick second, give everybody a moment, and you can talk about unicorns and rainbows for a minute. <laughs> I was going to say, you are setting me up to have a dull and deeply untheological thought, and you are fully correct. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. I was totally giving you our time. <laughs> um, I will go first and uh, fully prove that I am not in seminary. Uh, uh, to be honest, the thing that I'm think- I've been thinking about, this has come up in three or four different conversations lately. And it is the idea of time management versus energy management. Have we had this conversation recently? No. So historically, when we're thinking about making sure we are living our most efficient and well-run and most organized lives, we think in terms of time management, right? I want to know what I'm doing at 8. I want to know what I'm doing at 9. I want to know what I'm doing at 10. And as long as it's all plugged into the calendar and I do whatever I need to do, I'm living the most efficient life I can. Hmm. Does that kind of basically summarize time management the way you understand it? Yeah, absolutely. And several times over the years, and I read a lot about time management, and particularly in books that are time management books for people who are creative, one of the thing, the trends I have noticed over the last really 10 years, but I have been thinking about it a lot this week, is the shift from saying, all right, just plug things into your calendar, to asking a different question, which is, how do I steward my energy level in any given moment, day, week? Recognizing that my energy level sort of rises and falls on a rhythm that is pretty regular, and therefore I should be planning to live my life based on that reality rather than ignoring it. (laughs) Uh, So the way that this works out for me, for example, is 
if I have to do a writing project or a creative project or anything that requires brainstorming or planning, any sort of mental work, if I do it in the morning before noon, let's say it might take me an hour and a half to do Project X. If I were to do that exact same project in the afternoon, it might take me three and a half hours to get the exact same project done with the exact same level of quality <laughs> because I'm just not as energetic. Does yeah. this make sense? Mm-hmm. Totally. And so the argument that energy management makes is that you pay attention to your own energy rhythms and block your time out accordingly. Do the creative stuff when you have creative energy. Do the less creative stuff when you have less creative energy, and you will have a more efficient life and a more fulfilled life. Mm. And I have, for whatever reason, happened to have said that thing to three different people this week in three different conversations and have once again found myself asking, am I actually doing this? Mm. Am I living my life in a way that pays attention to my own energy rhythms? And I don't know that I am, but I know that I want to pause and pay attention to that. And that is my deeply practical, completely non-theological thought. I wouldn't say that at all because, I mean, I think you look at Genesis 1 and the rhythms of creation and the rhythms of a week. I, I think you're, you're deeply theological there. We just haven't tied them together yet. Sure. The, the guy in seminary can make it theological, I'm sure. I didn't <laughs> question that. <laughs> Uh, all right. All right. I just don't want to be cranky at three o'clock. That's all I'm going for. <laughs> okay. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> all right. So divine immutability. This makes me throw a theological temper tantrum. I hate this topic because- Well, then in... thanks for bringing it up. Yeah, you're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, it's after three o'clock and I can be cranky. So <laughs> um, I- what I don't like is the classical theological understanding of immutability. Immutability just means like we can do nothing to affect God. God is in himself and he's fully complete. We can do nothing to add to, take away from, or in otherwise diminish or enhance God. It is He is completely self-contained in that respect. So divine immutability has been understood in classical theology to mean that he doesn't even feel emotions because that would imply some level of change in God caused by an external source. And God is beyond that. And so God cannot have emotions. God cannot respond relationally with a human being in an emotional way because that would be, that would imply change. And I think that that's just hogwash. I don't think every single time you look at the Bible and it says something about God experiencing an emotion, you can just say, oh, well, that's just anthropomorphic wording. That's just us projecting our own experience onto God. No, I actually think that's what's happening in God. 
And there are other passages that are really hard to contend with, like in Exodus, where God says, I'm going to wipe these people off the map. They've ticked me off so bad. It must have been after three o'clock. And yeah, well, <laughs> and, if God is timeless. That means it's always after three o'clock. Oh, ouch. Uh, okay. Now we know why Revelation is. Uh, but, <laughs> or at least Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, Moses comes before God and says, no, 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 no. You, you can't wipe these people off the face of the earth. What will everybody say? They're going to be like, yeah, this God isn't powerful enough to, to fulfill his promises or whatever. And so God, what if, for whatever reason, because of argument or because of Moses asked or whatever, God repents. Like, that's the word that's used. He turns around. He, chases, he makes a different choice. Mm-hmm. So divine immutability is really hard to sustain in that context. So I'm reading an author. This is our assigned reading for my Doctrine of God class by John Feinberg called No One Like Him. Really good, but really slow, patient, careful teasing out of doctrine. And so it's pretty laborious. But he isolates four attributes of divine immutability that we would all affirm. And he says, God's being, his purposes, his decrees, and his ethical norms. These are completely unchanging, and humanity has no effect on them whatsoever. He will always be who he is, his purposes will remain, his decrees, and his ethical norms, his definition of what is morality. Like All of that is 100% constant. After that, God has structured the world in such a way that he does allow himself to respond to humanity and and whatever other forces and has some level of change or adaptability to him, so long as it doesn't affect these categories. And I thought that was a really great doctrinally sound approach to say, okay, yes, God is immutable in certain categories, but that doesn't mean we extend it into every category absurdly and in the face of scriptural evidence to the contrary. Mm, That's good. I really appreciate this because, first of all, I also do not always like the use of the idea of anthropomorphism, which is basically a theological trash can in which we throw things that we think we understand things better than the Bible does. Um, (laughs) Yes. You know, whether it's, the emotions of God or whatever, I often think we may make a significant theological mistake to call something symbolic language and then claim that we can go beyond the inspired symbolic language to understand what's behind it. Mm. If God wanted to give us something better behind the language, he could have done that. (laughs) And I don't mean to ignore the ideas of symbol in the Bible, but to claim out of context that something is symbolic language like anthropomorphism is just a theologically dangerous thing to do. Completely agree. Yeah. Unless you are doing so because the one text you are dealing with somehow requires it to be symbolic language because of the larger canon of scripture. Yeah, Um, absolutely. And that would be not what I'm talking about here. For sure. Or because of the grammatical stuff that's going on. You know, if the words like or as are there, or (laughs) if it is clearly a parable, again, not what we're talking about here. 
Yeah. Yes, exactly. Man, that's good stuff. Yeah, I agree. I, I was I was impressed with the way he teased that out. So go John Feinberg. That's awesome. Well, you know, it is that time we have a which Josh question on the table right now because of a post from last week asking which Josh danced in his high school musicals, Crazy for You and Oklahoma. And the answer is... Josh from Oregon. Congratulations. You are the dancer. I, well, I was. Yeah, I I did. And I actually really enjoyed that. I, it's probably a side of me that a lot of people don't know. But what's odd about it, I had never danced prior to like, hey, I want to be in this production. Um, so I had never danced before that. Uh, we had an excellent, excellent dance instructor that taught us a lot of really fun stuff. But I happened to be the right height and shape to be paired with a gal at, at my high school that actually was a dancer and was really, really talented and therefore needed to be the front and center, like principal dancer person. And so I was like, wow. so I was like front and center with her. But the problem is like, she knew how to dance and like, I knew how to count to eight a whole lot of times. And so I was just up there like mouthing like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, one, two, three. Um, I had no idea I was mouthing that as I was trying to like step in time. But yeah, there's my dancing career right there. Congratulations. I mean, there are two things I quote the movie Hitch about. And one of them is the fact that he is the only dance instructor I've ever had and the only one I ever need. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, all right. Well, we on for next week? We absolutely are. I can't wait. All right. Well, I'll talk to you later. Okay. Have a good one. All right. Bye. 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 <laughs>